as this uh, series of podcasts um, comes to an end, there'll just be a few more episodes. Um, going to bring up some issues, just do some reminding of some things I did talk about, um, kind of like a little bit of a summary. Uh, so I hope this these next few episodes certainly will be helpful. So the first thing I want to just remind you, because I did talk about this, is what it means to be a Christian. Well, let me begin with what a Christian is not. Jesus is not offering a get-out-of-hell-free coupon. You know, just believe in me. That's not his offer. And neither is he selling fire insurance for the lake of fire. That is, he's not merely trying to save people from their deserved judgment and its consequences. Or another way to say this is, Jesus is not merely a Savior. He is the Savior, capital S, but he's also far more than that. For if Jesus is not a person's king, Lord, boss, the one they want to love and obey, then he's not that person's Savior. He's not willing to just save you while you go on living under you, doing what you want. He's your Lord. You're to obey him, and you're to obey him because you love him. So in short, Jesus isn't looking for people to just believe in him. Demons believe in him. So they can avoid hell, yet have no desire to turn from living this life their own way. So what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who is willing to, number one, repent, turn from sin, and turn toward obeying Jesus. And, number two, who keeps on, keeps on, it's not just a one-time event, believing and trusting that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the King of Kings, the bridegroom king, in fact. Third, they're immersed in water. And fourth, they receive the Holy Spirit, which is the main ingredient of the New Covenant. That's the whole point of the New Covenant, the Messianic Covenant. Ezekiel 11, 19 through 20. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. John 3, 5 through 6. Acts 2, 16 through 18. And this receiving of the Spirit is an actual, real encounter with Him. He's the one that causes a person to be born again. Then this Christian continues to be filled with the Holy Spirit for power purposes, both the power to love and obey Jesus and the power to further the kingdom. If you need more information, I suggest a, a couple of books. First one is uh, The Normal Christian Birth by David Paulson. And uh, also when it comes to the issue of once saved, always saved. Um, David Pawson has a book about that as well. There's also a pamphlet on Amazon.com titled The Essential Nature of Holiness in Regard to Salvation. It's not that holiness is something you do to earn it. Salvation is free. But if, in fact, a person has been born again, if they have, in fact, received the Spirit, if they really do want to love and obey Jesus, even at times when they mess up, that's the goal, not just keeping people out of hell. Next, and what happened um, when the Spirit of Jesus began 
showing up. In fact, the very first time he showed up in a very dynamic way, which was the last Sunday morning of July 1989, in a congregation where I was one of the pastors. And by the way, he left on August, the first Sunday night of August 1995. But in those years that he was there, we, in leadership, we were faced with having to learn some vitally important lessons. First, believe it or not, we were, we were a Southern Baptist church, and we had some stupid theology. If you're Southern Baptist, I'm, I'm sorry. I guess that you're a Southern Baptist, and maybe you don't know that there's some stupid theology there. Because no one has perfect theology. But we, as Baptists, had some really dumb stuff. So no one has perfect theology, and we did have some bad stuff. But when he showed up, in a very real and profound way, he began to address these issues, this, some of this bad theology, the silliness that we believed. Initially, this, guess what? It was offensive. As if Jesus is a Baptist, <laughs> you know? As we thought that we just knew that we knew. And then it became confusing. However, however, our confusion resulted in a humble realization that we actually knew very little. And since Jesus gives us his empowerment, grace, he gives it to the humble, well, we began to learn from him by humbling ourselves. This shouldn't be a surprise, for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law also had some stupid theology. Jesus tried to correct, but they did not respond well, did they? So the issues of having a humility and especially the willingness to be corrected and to change what you thought was right is really important. Because if you're not willing to do that, well, it's like new wine in an old wineskin. It's just going to burst. So to me, I don't care if Jesus asks me to stand on my head and spit quarters. I know that's weird. And some of the things he does is weird. Now the question is, how many? So when the presence of the living God actually shows up, he does many things that just don't fit into our human version of what we consider decent and in order. For there is the order of the dead bodies in the cemetery, and there is the order of lively children in a nursery. There can still be order, even amongst children in a nursery. Also, once a person has actually tasted living water, that person knows the difference between it and water from a cistern, much less a sewer. Sadly, those who have never tasted living water have no idea that they're being served dirty water. For me, as the choice I made, a vow I made, I will not drink anything other than living water just to survive just to go to church. I'd rather die of thirst than dysentery. Therefore, leaders are faced with two choices. Try to control, to make things seem reasonable out of fear, or to back off, let Jesus do what he wants to do, letting the one who owns the sheep have his way with his sheep, even when, not if, you don't understand it. It's not that leaders shouldn't be careful, for there are false things that can happen. 
There is the flesh, of course. Our approach at this congregation was to let the bush grow wild for a while and then trim it back. And the Lord would tell us how to trim it. You know, what areas that got out of bounds, then correct it, bring it back in line. But it has to happen first. You can't be so controlling that basically he doesn't do anything. This gave Jesus time to teach us about what he was doing, and most importantly, to help us to minimize the possibility of us quenching him out of biblical ignorance. For example, Pharisees demanded Jesus explain himself and the things he was doing. Here was his answer. Are you ready? (laughs) As a Western culture person, you're not going to like this. Here was his answer. Do what I'm saying then you'll know if it's true or not. John 7, 17. <laughs> See, Western culture, we hate that. We want to understand every minute detail first, and then we'll think about maybe doing it. Unfortunately for us Western culture Americans, Jesus ain't an American. He doesn't think like us. He expects us to think like him. Here's what I mean. Jesus encounters a blind man. And to heal him, Jesus spits in the man's eyes. Mark 8. Jesus also put mud in another blind man's eyes in John 9. He then asks the man what he sees. And although the man's eyesight is improved, it's not perfect. So Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes, and now his eyesight is completely restored to him. I got some questions. First, What healing power is there in Jesus' spit or in Palestinian dirt? Secondly, what did this blind guy, who had no idea who was speaking to him, do when he felt this stranger spitting on his eyes? Thirdly, why wasn't the man healed the first time? Point is, this is weird. (laughs) Jesus simply could have said, be healed, as he did in lots of other situations, and the guy would have been healed. Why did Jesus do what he did in this situation? Answer, because that's what he saw the Father doing. John 5, 19. And in case you didn't know, the Father is not concerned with what we humans, especially we American, quote, enlightened, scientific, smart, Bible expert humans that we think we're so smart about, about what he does. Or even if what he does whether or not it fits into our puny theology. As a wise man used to say, this God offends the mind to reveal what's truly in the heart. So when the actual presence of the living God manifests among a people, it is definitely not business as usual. There's a parable by Wes Siegler in which he compared settler theology with pioneer theology And I actually read this in one of the early episodes. I'm going to remind you of what he said about the Holy Spirit. He said, in settler theology, the Holy Spirit is the saloon girl. Her job is to comfort the settlers. Could that be any more boring? They come to her when they feel lonely or when life gets dull or dangerous. She tickles them under the chin and makes everything okay again. The saloon girl also squeals to the sheriff. That's who Jesus is represented as. Whenever someone starts disturbing the peace, 
Like as if that's the whole point, just keep everything peaceful. In pioneer theology, the Holy Spirit is the buffalo hunter. He rides along with the covered wagon and furnishes fresh meat for the pioneers. They would die without it and him. You know, in Baptist circles a long time ago, when we would sing hymns, the first hymn is about the father, the first stanza is about the father, the second is about the son, the third is about the spirit, and the fourth was, was a summary. Many, many services, I remember the, the song leader saying, let's sing the first, second, and fourth stanza. He would leave out the stanza about the spirit. The buffalo hunter is a strange character, sort of a wild man. The pioneers never can tell what he'll do next. Boy, is that true. He scares the hell out of the settlers, because all they want is peace. He has a big black gun that goes off like a cannon. He rides into town on Sunday morning and shakes up the settlers. Again, they're peace. You see, every Sunday morning, the settlers have a little ice cream party in the courthouse, that's the church building, with his gun in his hand, the buffalo hunter sneaks up to one of the courthouse windows. Then he fires a tremendous blast that rattles the whole courthouse. Men jump out of their skin. Women scream. Dogs bark. Chuckling to himself. I'll bet he does. <laughs> the buffalo hunter rides back to the wagon train, shooting up the town as he goes. That's a pretty good description of what we in this congregation experience with the presence of the Holy Spirit. He just doesn't fit into our way of thinking. He makes us conform to him. That is, if we want him. The thing is, I think most people have some sense that if the presence of the living God did show up in their midst, they would be blown away. Talk about the fear of the Lord, conviction, people falling down, humbling themselves, lots of people becoming born again because he starts exposing all the people who go to church who have never been born again. Lots of stuff starts happening. And yet, the downside, most people just don't want to be. But they're like their comfortable and religious Sunday morning ice cream parties where they can serve pink lemonade. For those who truly want the presence of the almighty living God, coffee and cookies are distractions. For they are not there to partake of these things. For those who are only interested in churchianity, frankly, that congregation can't offer enough coffee and cookies as well as other silly stuff to satisfy people. So as news of what Jesus of Nazareth, his spirit was doing in this particular congregation, when it spread, two things happened. Those who were hungry for Jesus himself, some living miles away, spontaneously began to show up. For as Dio Moody used to say, you don't have to advertise a fire. A fire is its own advertisement. The other thing that happened was that far more people stayed away. Big-name pastors in this city stayed away. Truly, after nearly 2,000 years since Jesus was here, nothing has changed. A few want him on his terms, and most do not. Next. The truths of the Song of Songs is only marginally helpful as a, for married couples. Seems like people think that the Song of Songs is just for married people. Come on, how much marital help have you actually gleaned from the Song of Songs for your marriage? And the title immediately tells us why. But this song's main purpose is far more than human marriage. 
In other words, just as the Holy of Holies is not just one holy place among many holy places, but rather it is the holiest place of all holy places, and just as Jesus is not one king among many kings, but rather he is the king of all kings, well, this song is not just one nice song among many songs, but rather it is the song of all songs, the all-time number one hit, the song that is eternally at the very top of the charts. Therefore, the Holy Spirit has been extremely focused upon the Song of Songs for several decades now, actually, highlighting it and illuminating it and revealing its treasures for many years. If you haven't been aware of this, if you know little to nothing about this song, and again, it's not about marriage, it's about the marriage, it's about developing real love and a real follower of Jesus, that process, you're missing something incredibly important. You should seriously wonder if you and the leaders you're following are hearing from the Holy Spirit. Seriously, this is deeply into his heart. He's been really focused on this. For the overall point of the song is how Jesus matures a member of the bride in real love. How does that happen? How does a person grow in the first and greatest commandment? The secret is sort of hidden, if you will, in the Song of Songs. And this process begins with the person responding to the Holy Spirit's prompting in them to truly want to know the bridegroom king as deeply and as intimately as possible. That's what they ask for in chapter 1, verse 2. I want to know the kisses of his lips. That's a metaphor. It's not actually kissing Jesus. He's just using poetic language. But it ends with the person head over heels, lovesick for the bridegroom king, in chapter 8, wanting to kiss the king. Begins with wanting him to kiss them, ends with them wanting to kiss him. And note also the bride's repeated comment. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 4. What she means is, this love is not something a person can produce, that they can arouse it or awaken it by their own human efforts. This love is real love and can only be had from the one who is love. In other words, acquiring real love is something Jesus does to his bride. It's a process he takes each one of us through individually. It is not something a person can do to themselves. Therefore, the whole point of the song is to show the process he uses. It's a hard process, by the way. To develop his love in a person who longs to have it and him. And as an example, the Spirit opening a person's eyes and, and his or her heart so he or she can see what passion the bridegroom king has for his bride. Look at these two verses. Note what, he, what the bridegroom king says to his bride. Chapter 4, verse 9. You have stolen my heart. You have stolen my heart with just one glance of your eyes. And then in chapter 6, verse 5, your eyes, they overwhelm me. I recommend Mike Bickle's teachings on this on the song. You can get them at the, uh, the website of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. So there'll be another episode where I'll go through some more general things like this to end this first season of this podcast.
Bye.